time for the Manufacturing Austin Podcast, sponsored by Texas Mutual. Welcome. My name is Ed Latson, and this is the Manufacturing Austin Podcast, sponsored by Texas Mutual. Today, our guest is Larry Smith, chairman for Tokyo Electron US, an important global semiconductor company that has their North American headquarters in Austin, Texas. Larry has decades of experience and is respected worldwide as a thought leader in industry. He's been an effective advocate for solving problems and working together, especially around shared R&D, workforce issues, veterans pipelines, and more. He's the right guy at the right time to tell us what is going on in semiconductors and what it might mean for Central Texas. Larry, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Ed, thank you so much. Uh, it's real been a privilege to be connected with you over the last couple of years, and thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. Absolutely. Let's let's start kind of at the beginning. So, can you give us a quick overview of Tokyo Electron um, globally, and then also North America? Absolutely. So, Tokyo Electron provides technology that enables life, and we do that through manufacturing uh, semiconductor equipment to make microchips for our customers, like Samsung here in the local uh, Central Texas area, NXP, Infineon, and then. If, expand that up to North Texas. You got uh, Texas Instruments as part of that, but we're uh, number three in the equipment uh, provider, manufacturing equipment for semiconductors. And uh, we have a, a global presence uh, across all the major regions of the world. And uh, an annual sales for Tokyo Electron globally is uh, somewhere between 15 and $17 billion a year, uh, depending on the exchange rate, which is uh, fluctuating pretty significantly right now. Our US operations, uh, we uh, have 17 sites uh, that are very familiar to most of our uh, colleagues or customers that provide uh, chips across the nation. And uh, so we're really anywhere in the United States where our customers are making microchips. And what's your footprint here in Austin? Footprint here, this is our headquarters. Uh, we have a variety of uh, individual shared services, sales support. We've got about 400 people, uh, and then that's going to expand with the Samsung uh, plant up in uh, up in Taylor. So we're excited about adding uh, uh, an additional office up there, kind of a sales and service and, and parts warehouse uh, supply uh, depot up in, the, up in the Taylor area. Well, um, I think everybody knows this is an incredible moment in Semiconductor. Um, talk for a moment about... Uh, what that means to you after spending decades in this industry, but then also about maybe what it means for you as a leader of a company who um, is going to be responsible for meeting unprecedented demand. Yeah, Ed, it's interesting. So uh, I am at uh, 34 years in the industry, uh, spent some time in the Army uh, coming out of college. And and so I've seen a, a lot of changes over those 34 years, but it's unprecedented right now with the CHIPS Act with some of the geopolitical strategic competition with the US and in China, which has is, is impacted our industry. Um, but the, the number of projects we're seeing right now are unprecedented. You know, we'd see a greenfield site from maybe some of our larger customers, or maybe there was a, a new uh, site uh, every few years. And, you know, when you look at the hubs of, of expansion right now, it's, it's really unprecedented with the incentives come from the CHIPS Act, but also the demand of the industry. Like right now, the industry of our customers is about a half a trillion dollars in that $500 billion range. And we expect, we, we have uh, some uh, senior leadership uh, symposiums or, or technical conferences that talk about a trillion transistors and a trillion dollar market. And we see that over the next probably five to seven years that 
this market for semiconductor chips is going to double. Well, then what does that mean to infrastructure and employment and R&D and collaboration with, uh, with uh, public-private partnerships, which is going to come out of like the NSTC and, and other entities that are incentivized uh, through this CHIPS Act? And NSTC being the National Semiconductor Technology Center will be a shared R&D center for companies to create new technologies. Larry, you articulated it well. I mean, there's kind of two things driving it forward. You have um, this incredible demand from all these new products coming along online that require semiconductors, but you also have the geopolitical angle. Uh, do you think we have chips without the geopolitics? When you look at some of the data from our market share where we invented the chip and then the manufacturing market share, and, and then we're really a global industry prior to this most sensitive tension with the U.S. and China over the last couple of years. But our market share went from roughly, you know, 37 percent, you know, a decade or so ago to, to you know, in the in the lower uh, teens, I would say right now, 12 or 13 percent. So pretty significant from a manufacturing jobs that went to different parts of Asia to include China uh, because of, of global com uh, competitiveness, labor markets, supply chain issues. And so this strategic competition has changed it. And it changed. One of the reasons was the incentives that came from other governments. So as those incentives created the industries in other parts of the world, uh, we were at a competitive disadvantage due to those incentives. It wasn't market pure. And, and our incentives here are trying to bring that critical technology when you think of artificial intelligence and quantum computing and our supply chain for the automotive industry. And then in particular for the defense industry, in light of some of the, the tensions with you know, the Russian-Ukraine conflict and the tensions with, with uh, China and Taiwan, you know, I think it's a good public policy for incentivizing that critical technology to come back to the home front. Yeah, and you, you've kind of already hit on this, but, um, you know, I can't think of anything else that Republicans and Democrats are agreeing on right now. Uh, you know, besides we need to be investing in technologies that allow us to maintain our competitive advantage around, around the world. Do you think that that sentiment's going to hold up as we progress through this period that we're in right now? You know, it's 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 really interesting is that our political system in our country I think is the greatest in the world, but the the cycle of two-year changes can create changes within the the policies and administration. But like you said, there is a a very aligned bipartisan approach to the CHIPS Act. Uh, it's benefiting a wide variety of regions in the United States for jobs and investments and, and economic development, of which Central Texas has done a wonderful job in that particular space. And so I think it will be something that we can carry forward. You know, the, the far right may want to restrict more than is needed to be restricted. The far left may want to put in uh, some constraints that, you know, can cause some disruption. But if you look to the middle on some of these key incentives, when you look at national defense and, and uh, economic security and supply chain security uh, with some of the issues we faced during, during COVID, I think this will maintain its importance over the next several years. Well, you know, I fully expect um, this investment that the U.S. government is making to really impact Central Texas. We already see a lot of growth. You mentioned the Samsung plant and Taylor. Um, there's probably three or four other major semiconductor companies that are looking at expansion. You have all these suppliers moving in. Uh, if you talk to any of these leaders, including you, 
you know, one of the things you hear first and foremost is a question mark, a concern about workforce. Uh, you know, just by way of background, in, in the last year, Central Texas workforce has grown over 7%. It's one of the fastest growing manufacturing workforces in the country. Uh, I do feel like the region is producing workers, and I'm excited about what we're doing as a community. But, um, you know, when I've heard you say that um, we have the opportunity to be one of the leaders in semiconductor workforce training in the nation, uh, what does that look like for you? What does that mean? Well, you know, Ed, I've, I've heard um, John Taylor from Samsung talk about the investments in Taylor is, is a generational impact. And so when we talk about workforce, you know, we've got a wonderful industry of great paying jobs to include my company and many others in this ecosystem. And, you know, so I believe at this stage of my career, and I'm at the tail end of my career, one of my callings is to help help hire veterans or get veterans into this industry and help house veterans on my on my public engagement with, with homelessness. But if I stay focused on the hiring and the workforce development part of it, and I'm I'm focusing on how do we train the workforce from a number of different sources. You know, so we're we're working and you and I took a trip up to Fort Hood. You know, 200,000 veterans, between 150 and 200,000 veterans get out of the um, service every year. And we need between 75 and 100,000 people probably over the next three to five years. So, you know, one of my personal goals is trying to get about 20,000 veterans into our into our industry. I just love. And but the, the challenge is there's not a good handoff. There's the TAPS program, which is the Transitions Assistance Program. But there's this tension between you know, the, the, the service agencies of retention and, and making sure that they're meeting their um, uh, sustainability goals from, the, from their uh, workforce part of it. And then an appropriate transition once they've decided to get out, where do we provide those opportunities? And to be honest, we're an intimidating industry. I'm going to go from being a, an infantry person or a, a field artillery or maybe a tank or aircraft mechanic or a Navy nuke. They, they're really talented people um, to manipulating atoms. I, I mean, our industry puts billions of transistors on, on chips the size of our thumbnails. So we have to do a better job of educating and providing that workforce training. We have to work with, like you've done a great job partnering with ACC and putting together these certification programs. So we took the trip to Fort Hood to, to take a look at Central Texas College, Austin Community College, Texas A&M, Texas A&M Central. There's a, an ecosystem that we can bring together to collaborate. And much like our research consortium up in New York that's done research that's effective collaboratively with a public-private institution, I'd like to translate and provide the opportunity for an NSTC that is a national semiconductor training center with a hub here in Central Texas. Yeah, and um, you know, speaking about veterans, you get around a base or anybody that's transitioning out of the military, and they're such high-caliber people. Um, you know, you just know that every employer would want to hire them if they got a chance to meet them. And so, I really respect your effort trying to build that pipeline. Uh, I think they're a critical piece of the puzzle here. Um, I think having some sort of asset, um, this National Semiconductor Technology Center that you mentioned, or something in the region that's really convening the workforce partners also uh, could just be an incredible moment. Uh, one thing I like about chips and um, what's happening here is that there's so much money being dispersed and the moment is so uh, ripe with opportunity that everybody's actually paying attention. And I am optimistic that we're gonna be able to get some big stuff done. 
you know, you mentioned your personal work, and I think that's uh, a really interesting piece of your story. Can you talk about um, your mission, living at Community First Village, and and some of the things you're doing there? Sure, Ed. In fact, the, the meeting I just left was with Alan Graham, the founder and CEO of, of Community First. So I have the privilege of, of being connected to that organization, Mobilos and Fishes, in Austin, Texas, for about 15 years. You know, started uh, working with them on a monthly basis, um, going out on their truck runs and, and feeding the homeless in our community. And over the last 25 years, uh, you know, Alan and the organization have been responsible for feeding about six and a half million meals to our community, our homeless uh, brothers and sisters. Um, you know, about eight to 10 years ago, they established uh, uh, a village out in the east side of Austin called Community First. Uh, we're currently housing over 400 of formerly chronic homeless individuals in a very unique and eclectic group of tiny homes and park model RVs. And uh, it's, a, it's a real privilege to be part of that organization that over the last seven or eight years has made a, a significant impact on providing a mitigating solution to the challenge we're facing, not only in Austin, but across the country. Uh, I've also had the privilege of having one of my former teammates at Tokyo Electron lead the education and replication model. So as individuals come and visit us and, and see a model for dealing with this challenge, which is, uh, per, is really across the entire nation, uh, Karen and the team have trained over 600 people from about 200 cities to try to come and learn from that particular experience. So uh, yeah, I'm grateful for the opportunity. My wife and I had the privilege of living out there for about five and a half years and and a pretty life-changing experience. Well, you know, anybody that walks through there, um, you know, is just so blown away by the um, magnitude of the mission and the success of the venture. Um, any personal lessons that you take away from that experience living there um, that you bring into your personal life, uh, your professional life? Yeah, you know, you know, Ed, it's really interesting. So one of the key lessons learned I took from that when I started to to go out on these truck truck operations, and um, as you know, I lead a, a pretty significant company, and I'm disciplined, and there's an operational you know rhythm or cadence to that, and so I would go into those opportunities, and it was like, all right, how can I efficient efficiently and effectively feed as many people as possible, you know? And Bren Wilson was my my partner on the truck runs, uh, you know, 15 years ago. And so I'm like, line up, behave, you know, <laughs> let's not have any fights. And, but the, one of the lessons I learned was I really treated that as a transaction. And my friend Bren would be, you know, on the curb with an individual. He knew their name, he knew their drug of choice, he knew their story, their hometown. And, and, um, and I, I didn't have that connectedness. And so I, I really looked at that service opportunity in a transactional mode. And now that my wife and I have been living in, and I'm, I have the privilege of being on the board of directors and chairman of the board right now of Mobilos and Fishes. So uh, I have learned a lot of lessons to move from that transaction. So I have about 50 close friends now out in the village. And I, that's been probably the key lesson. You know, I think that's great uh, to hear that story. But, you know, just as a point of feedback, I, I've been obviously fortunate enough to tour Tell as well and uh, spend some time with you and your team. You really seem to have a personal connection with your leadership team and your and your staff. You have a great culture. Um, you know, do you think these things are all connected together, or as an intentional effort on your part? Or I do. You know, leadership from the top is setting the right tone. I love part of our culture is based primarily on trust. Our our vision is 
to be a, a trusted global partner providing technology that enables life. And trust, if I take Stephen Covey's The Speed of Trust book, which was had an influence on that vision statement, it's built with character and competence. You know, so um, we try to have that integrated into our organization and have that as the foundation. And uh, that's that's probably one of one of the areas where I'm proud of. And the other one is that we also like to refer to as tell cares, tell for good and, and giving out to that community. So it's a number of different ways, you know, to, whether it's Habitat for Humanity or for the education or for uh, mobiles and fishes and others. You know, uh, our our team has a, um, a commitment to engage with the community. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. I think it shows uh, you've had a couple other kind of formative experiences. Um, you know, and I was looking at your your resume. Obviously, you were a West Point graduate. Uh, also saw that you played on the hockey team. And, uh, you know, I was curious, you know, what lessons you take from hockey and from West Point into your professional life? Yeah, you know, I'll go to the West Point experience. So I, I was fortunate enough to use an athletic town. I grew up in northern Minnesota, where there's not much else to do in the middle of the winter than to play ice hockey. Um, and so I grew up in a very... Um, working class, middle class family. My father was a firefighter. Ed, you probably don't know the interesting part of that story is my father was was a World War II Marine in the Pacific and fought against the Japanese. Wow. And so I, I worked for a Japanese. He didn't buy his first Japanese company until he was about 80 years old and he regretted not doing it 20 years earlier. But I, I took him back uh, to you know Okinawa and, and had the chance to have this healing trip when he was about 85 years old. And so that's an interesting aspect. So I used that athletic talent and was given the opportunity to, to play hockey at West Point and, and, and join that. But one of the things that I tell people is I get the opportunity, lessons learned from West Point, is they teach you early on. In fact, I think reception day is in a day or two. So the new class is going to be coming there from day one. But in those first few days, they teach you five responses. Now, this is 39 years ago, Ed. So there may be some evolution there. But it, you had these responses and it could be, Yes, sir, or no, ma'am. You know, I'll put that in the same category, sir or ma'am, because it, it, it in, in a leadership role. But yes, sir, no, sir, no excuse, sir. Sir, may I ask a question? Sir, may I make a statement? The one that has the most meaningful impact for me as a leader and what I tell people is we're a society that has excuses. We're victims. And when you have a mentality of I'm going to do what it takes and take no excuses and, and ownership and making sure that, you know, I'm going to get to that destination to make sure that right flank is guarded for my colleague, my teammate to protect their life. If you take some of those same principles and I can save people four years of hell of going through that experience of just get away from being a victim, take that ownership. There's a book of, you know, Navy SEALs called Extreme Ownership. I'll save you 20 bucks. It's the same mentality. They just take no excuses to the extreme, both physically, mentally, and, and psychologically. And, and uh, that's one of the key lessons I learned. Um, on the hockey team, it was the privilege, you know, it's, it's an environment of my relationships I built over the 39 years ago, still connected to many of those, much like maybe your college, college, your roommates or classmates as you stay connected. But I, I think those relationships are really critical. Do you uh, still lace up the skates? I did until I was 50. And then uh, my mind said I could still do it. Uh, but by body, by my body had other other thoughts to that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not a lightweight uh, physical investment, is it? <laughs> but my claim to fade, Ed, is I played hockey for 35 years and I still have my original teeth. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I know many others are not as fortunate, Larry. So uh, good job. 
Ed, thank you for your leadership and uh, bringing this group of people around manufacturing to Central Texas. You've been tremendously successful in bringing this collaborative conversation to opportunities that we need to take care of this community. So I applaud you for the the, the initiative and, and the incentives and reaching out to, to us and others to bring this collective group together to make a bigger impact. So I applaud you and I'm grateful to be part of your organization. Larry, I, I really appreciate those words. And I can tell you that it's working with guys like you that make this job fun and worthwhile. Um, I really appreciate your time. This is the Manufacturing Austin podcast sponsored by Texas Mutual. We'll see you next time.